Welcome to today's, to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. It is Thursday, February 15th, and I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. Here is our first story on the front page of the Globe Gazette. It's entitled Veterans Honored, big color picture of uh, many veterans, and the, leading under, the reading underneath it says, Recipients of the Quilts of Valor posed together with Chaplain Norris Hughes at the Quilts of Valor ceremony held at the Mason City All Vets Center on Saturday. And it's written by Robin McClelland. Quilts of Valor Foundation recognizes 16 with patriotic quilts, it says. 16 local veterans were honored in a ceremony Saturday at the All Vets Center in Mason City. Each veteran received a handmade quilt to recognize their service to the people and purpose of the United States. Cecil Fole, commander of the All Vets Center, VFW Post 733, opened this ceremony with a heartfelt welcome followed by a prayer from Chaplain Norris Hughes. Then, the women of the Quilts of Valor Foundation called out each service member by name and wrapped them in the comforting warmth of a patriotic quilt made just for them. Diane Weed, or W-E-I-D-E, Bonnie Harden, Kathy Scott, and Terry Sprung represented Quilts of Valor Foundation, with Sprung reading each veteran's record of service. We're always so grateful when vets choose to accept the quilts. Each and every one of them deserve one, but they sometimes don't know or have reservations about accepting, said Weed. Former Mason City Fire Chief and Seaman Kurt Morad was present and echoed Weed somewhat. I didn't even know about this program until I was nominated, he said. He also told of the difficulties he had accessing services from the Veterans Administration. I had a couple of screw-ups. When I first applied, I was told one thing, the second time another. Both times I got denied. Since then, I've connected with Maria Deek at the VA in Charles City and am getting in the disability I should have had all these years. United States veterans are also eligible, uh, turning the page here, they're also eligible for host of programs through the Veterans Administration and other agencies, but many service members still struggle with their basic needs. There are nearly 18 million veterans in the United States, with almost 194,000 in Iowa alone, according to the Veterans Administration. That population is declining with time. Vets who served within the last 30 years make up the largest portion of the group, surpassing Vietnam vets only recently. In 2022, the U.S. passed the Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics Act, expanding disability benefits for veterans exposed to toxic substances, such as those from burn pits or Agent Orange, and to determine eligibility, visit va.gov and create an account. Quilts of Valor is a program designed to cover service members and veterans touched by war with comforting and healing. Quilts according to their mission statement. Weed and the expansive list of volunteer quilters hold that mission close to their hearts as they create each quilt. The group shares a workspace, and each crafter takes on the task that suits them best, whether it's piecing, quilting, or binding. The many hands that work on each quilt are a symbol of the many lives touched by each service member. Any veteran who was honorably discharged can be nominated. 
The only requirement is that they are aware of the nomination and will accept the quilt. Quilts of Honor Quilts of Valor Foundation does not present quilts to veterans who do not want to accept them. Quilters, crafters, and others can donate time or funds to Quilts of Valor Foundation at the website or by contacting Leona Montag at 641-749-5381. And right here besides this are one of those plenty of pictures here of uh, the veterans standing in front of a quilt or by a quilt that they have been given to them. Quite an array of photos here. And continuing on page one, below that article is this one, Charles City Superintendent to Retire at End of School Year. Board hires search firm and parents urge district to focus on facility needs. It's written by Alexander Schmidt of the Globe Gazette. Charles City Community Schools is searching for a new superintendent. At a February 1 special session, the board accepted the retirement request of Superintendent Ann Lundquist, who came out of retirement in April of 2022 to serve as interim superintendent, filling a vacancy created when Superintendent Mike Fisher took a job with the Oskaloosa School District. Lundquist, who noted this is her third attempt at retirement, said she would serve until the end of the current school year, June 30. The board at its February 17 meeting resolved to engage McPherson and Jacobson LLC as a search firm to aid the district in the job search. Charles City parents Darcy and Mike Tracy, in a letter to the board, asked it to consider a candidate who will, quote, continue to move our school district forward with improvements and remodeling to our high school. We hope that board members see the importance of doing this soon, not in five to ten years, end quote. Addressing the district's facility needs, will be a top priority for the new superintendent after recent attempts from the school board to levy funds for facilities were rejected by voters. Voters in the district in November again denied a bond issue that would revitalize outdated high school spaces and build a new auditorium to the tune of $28.5 million. The levy would have increased property taxes $2.70 per year on every $1,000 of taxable property value. A survey conducted ahead of the vote indicated that 72% of residents, rather respondents, in the Charles City School District agree there is a recognized need to address facility needs at the high school. Um, as you, quote, as you focus on hiring a new superintendent, read the Stacy's letter, please hire someone with experience and interest in building a project, in a building project. Please hire another strong leader who is committed to forward movement. End quote. The next meeting of the Charles City Board of Education is scheduled at 5.30 p.m. February 26 in the high school library. Now we move to page two and three or four stories on here. The first one, Isabel Heinzerling, named February Noon Rotary Student of the Month. Isabel, Noon Rotary Student of the Month, February daughter of Shad and Joey Heinzerling. Current activities and achievements at school, I have played on the volleyball and golf teams and served as captain my senior year for both. I am also a member of the Student Senate along with Concert Choir, where I hold an officer position of choir historian. I've also participated in the prom committee as well. Outside of school, I have danced for 15 years at Dance Arts Center. 
I enjoyed being a lifeguard at the Mason City Aquatic Center and YMCA and working for the Mason City Park and Recreation Department. Some of my achievements include being a member of the National Honor Society, earning academic all-conference eight times, and being recognized as a Norman Borlaug Scholar. Service. I have completed 120 plus hours of community service during my high school career. I have volunteer, volunteered at church summer camps through my parish. And one of my largest acts of service has been cleaning the Lord's Church with my grandmother. One of my most memorable volunteer opportunities has been helping at volleyball and golf camps, including the YMCA camps, Riverhawk camps, and recreational camps. Future plans. Next year, I plan to attend the University of Northern Iowa to pursue a degree in physical and health education. Through my job at Parks and Recreation, I have found a love for helping kids learn how to be active, and I want to take that into the future. I also plan to work toward my coaching certification so I can give back to the sports that I love. The next story on this page, Australian County Music Duo to Perform in Clear Lake. And it is written by the staff of Globe Gazette. The Clear Lake Area Concert Association announced in a press release that Australian country music duo Camille and Stewie of the French Family Band will perform in Clear Lake next week. The show will be at 7 p.m. Wednesday, February 21st at the E.B. Stillman Auditorium, located at 1601 3rd Avenue North. Camille and Stewie French have been touring together over the last 20-plus years, the husband and wife vocal and guitarist duo have become beloved in the genre of Australian country music. Stewie, S-T-U-I-E, I, I think that's pronounced right, grew up in Tasmania and Camille in New Zealand. They earned three Australian Golden Guitar Awards, recognizing both their singing and playing. In 2013, the couple earned their first trophy together for Best Alternative Country Album of the Year. In 2017... Stewie, S-T-U-I-E, received Best Instrumental Album honors for his stunning album, Axe to Swing, according to the release. Now based out of Nashville, Tennessee, Camille and Stewie want their music to take people back to a time when the essence of country music was twangy, guitars, honest songs, and vocals that tear your heart out, they said. The evening's performance will include music fest uh, featuring by artists like the great Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, and Glenn Campbell, as well as some of their own award-winning originals. This is the third of four shows in CLACA's 2023-2024 season, which includes one remaining show in Clear Lake on Saturday, April 20th, plus the opportunity to attend up to five additional shows in the nearby reciprocal communities of Algona, Forest City, and Osage. Memberships are currently $30 for adults or $60 for a family, Students are free and will be available at the door. Memberships can also be purchased at Clear Lake Area Chamber of Commerce at 205 Main Avenue or the Grabinski Law Office, 1102 8th Avenue, Court Street, uh, Court South. Both in Clear Lake, single event passes are also available for $25. For additional information, see clearlakeconcerts.org or call 641-529-1964. Next article on this page. Legislatures may cap insulin cost at $75, written by Caleb McCullough. A dateline is Des Moines. Iowa lawmakers are considering a bill to limit out-of-pocket costs for insulin at $75 a month. 
Lawmakers advanced the bill out of state subcommittee on Monday, saying they hoped it would increase access to the diabetes drug. Insulin is used to treat high blood sugar in people with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. The bill would apply to people on state-regulated health insurance plans, including people with private health insurance and state-provided Medicaid. Uninsured Iowans would not be covered by the bill. Senator Kerry Colker, a Republican from Dyersville who proposed the bill, said the bill has been in the works for at least six years, and she hopes this can be the year it becomes law. Quote, it may not be enough, but if it saves one life, it should not be at the expense of the cost of insulin. End quote. That's what she said during the company meeting. She went on, so I'm happy to sign this out and continue the conversation, end quote. Senator Sarah Trone Garrett, a Democrat from Waukee, said she supported taking action to cap insulin costs, but she was curious whether the bill would leave out anyone who needed the medication. I am interested to learn more about, are there other consumers, other Iowans who might not be positively impacted by this bill, she said. Are there folks who are underinsured, not insured? Teresa Hildreth, who has type 1 diabetes, told senators on the subcommittee that insulin is a life-saving drug for her and other diabetic people. What is the one thing in your life you absolutely cannot live without, she said. For me, it's insulin. Without it, I'm a dying woman. Iowa House lawmakers uh, passed a bill in 2021 that would have capped insulin cost at $100 a month, but the bill never passed out of the Senate. House Democrats last year proposed a bill that would cap insulin cost at $25. The cost of insulin varies widely by product and health plan, and prohibitively, high costs have spurred government action in recent years. One study found people with diabetes have an average of $12,000 in annual cost associated with the condition. Several states have caps on insulin copays in place, ranging between $25 and $100 for a 30-day supply. Minnesota and Nebraska each have a cap of $35, while Illinois has a cap of $100. The Inflation Reduction Act in 2022 capped the out-of-pocket one-month insulin cost for Medicare patients at $35. As more and more states have regulated the price of insulin, insurers and manufacturers have largely brought prices down across the country. In March, drug manufacturer Eli Lilly cap the cost for patients of its insulin at $35 a month. Lobbyists for multiple health insurance companies said during the Senate subcommittee meeting they already priced their out-of-pocket insulin costs lower than the $75 cap in the bill. Noah Tabor, a lobbyist for Medica, noted that uninsured and underinsured Iowans would not be covered by the bill. As markets moved on insulin, Medica said has cap the co-pays on insulin at $25 for a number of years. Insulin is certainly a tender topic. I'm not sure of the utility of this bill. Who is going to be helped by this bill, Tabor said. And here's the final story on this page, page two. One dead in Chiefs Super Bowl parade shooting. Eight children among 22 people hit by gunfire, according to officials. This is an Associated Press article written by Heather Hollingsworth. Kansas City Dateline. Eight children are among 22 people hit by gunfire in a shooting at the end of Wednesday's parade to celebrate the Kansas City Chiefs' Super Bowl win, authorities said. 
As terrified fans ran for cover and yet another high-profile public event was marred by gun violence, one person was killed. Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves detailed the shooting's toll at a news conference and had three people and said three people had been taken into custody. She said she has heard that fans may have been involved in apprehending a suspect but couldn't immediately confirm that. I'm angry at what happened today. The people who came to this celebration should expect a safe environment. Police did not immediately, Graves said. Police did not immediately release the details about the people taken uh, into custody or about a possible motive for the shootings. She said firearms had been recovered, but not what kind of weapons were used. There's a lot of work ahead. This is just the beginning stages. All of that is being actively investigated, she said. It is the latest sports celebration in the U.S. to be marred by gun violence following a shooting that injured several people last year in downtown Denver after the Nuggets NBA championship and gunfire last year at a parking lot near the Texas Rangers World Series championship parade. Social media users posted shocking video of police running through a crowd scene as people hurriedly scrambled for cover and fled. One video showed someone apparently performing chest compressions on a shooting victim as another person seemingly writhing in pain lay on the ground nearby. People screamed in the background. Another video showed two people chase and tackle a person, holding them down until the police officers arrived. We're moving to page five in the opinion section of the Globe Gazette. This one is another view of Wall Street Journal, and it says CBO shows U.S. paddling to fiscal falls. Forecast indicates entitlements and debt payments are squeezing national defense. The Congressional Budget Office rudely interrupted the presidential campaign by releasing his 10-year budget outlook. Neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump wants to talk about the woolly mammoth in the room. But somebody has to point out that growing entitlements and debt payments are squeezing national defense. CBO forecasts that under current law, the national debt will grow to $48.3 trillion dollars in 2034 from 26.2 trillion last year last fiscal year a whopping 84% increase debt as a share of gdp will rise to 116% in 2034 from 97.3% as helpful historical context the us added 22.3 trillion dollars in debt in its entire history through 2021 about as much as it's projected to pile on over the next 10 years. Don't blame Americans for not paying enough taxes. Revenues are expected to average 17.8% of GDP through 2034, which is more than the 17.3% average over the last 50 years. The problem is that spending over the next decade will average 23.5% of GDP, significantly more than 50-year average of 21%. Even these debt projections may be optimistic. They assume no recession and that the 2017 Individual Tax Cuts and Inflation Reduction Act's sweetened Obamacare subsidies expire in 2025. Oh, and that Congress doesn't lather on more spending and more student debt isn't canceled by executive decree. What are the odds? It's true, the budget gnomes often underestimate economic growth. CBO may be pessimistic in assuming that GDP will rise on average by only 2% annually through 2034. Increased productivity from artificial intelligence and other technologies could put the country on a higher growth plane.
But in any case, the growth in spending and especially entitlements is unsustainable. Discretionary spending is expected to climb by $372 billion over the next 10 years, but mandatory programs will balloon by some $2.5 trillion and hit $6.3 trillion in 2034, almost entirely owing to growth in Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid. Growing deficits will compound and increase interest payments, The U.S. this fiscal year will spend an estimated $870 billion on servicing the debt, which is more than it will spend on defense. By 2034, interest payments will grow to $1.6 trillion, or 3.9% of GDP. Meanwhile, defense spending is at a post-war low of 3% of GDP and heading lower. It's the class in Washington these days to suggest that Entitlements need to be reformed. Democrats pretend that soaking the rich will make the Social Security and Medicare trust funds solvent. It won't. Or they plan to ration care by reducing payments for medicines and providers. Republicans say economic growth can do the job. This is essential. But it's no longer enough with entitlements growing so fast. It's almost as if everyone in Washington is blithely paddling toward Niagara Falls. Enjoy the scenery on the way down. And here's another one on that page. It's called, If the Economy is So Great, Why Are Evictions Soaring? And this one is written by Liz Gunderson, and she does write for the Los Angeles Times. Another migrant crisis is brewing. Unlike the one at the southern border, this one will be all over the country. A recent Harvard study found that half of the country's renters are spending a third or more of their income on housing. Those are the people fortunate enough to find housing amid a nationwide shortage of affordable homes. Combine the rent with the soaring cost of child care and don't forget groceries and, well, you can understand why evictions and homelessness have soared. We're living through an age of contradictions. The United States is the strongest economy in the world and Americans' credit card debt has never been higher. The unemployment rate has been less than 5% for President Joe Biden's entire first term and voters disapprove of his hailing of the economy. Wall Street predicted that last year's gross domestic product would grow by less than 2%, and instead it was 2.5%. Yet the economy feels weak to a lot of people. That's because for many people, the economy is weak. The top 1% now has more money than the nation's entire middle class. For Americans with the lowest incomes, rent is just the beginning of the worries. Unaffordable rent is a continuation of the wealth redistribution that accompanied the economic policies of President Ronald Reagan. Before disco, the top 10% shared 30% of the nation's income, while the remaining 90% uh, lived off the rest. Today, the bottom 90% is getting by with less than 60% of the income. The top 1% took in 14.6% in 2021, which is twice their 7.3% share in 1979, according to the Economic Policy Institute. After the 1979, Reagan convinced voters to make capital more important than people. Give the rich more and the extra will trickle down. Remember that? Greed is part of a capitalism, but it's not part of patriotism. Reagan's characterization of our economy conflated those two concepts, and many Americans embraced that fallacy as truth. 
Those who struggled to achieve prosperity were viewed as lazy and unworthy of help. Something had to be wrong with them, the thinking went, because nothing was wrong with this land of opportunity. This was the era when well-paying manufacturing jobs went elsewhere. This was when large, successful companies were able to take rather rake in record profits, while hard-working employees began to rely on food stamps to feed their families. I'm jumping ahead on this article a little bit. In 2023, the article continues, some states saw eviction filings jump more than 50% compared with pre-pandemic levels, and back then the employment rate was higher. That's the sustainable, that's the sustainable, I'm sorry, that's not sustainable either. Whether it's living off borrowers, borrowings to avoid taxable income or reporting losses legally while still making money, the various ways billionaire owners end up paying a lower tax rate than many of their employees are well documented. When rising costs are passed down to consumers, rent, baby formula, bacon, we are conditioned to blame the government and not the price gougers. When gas prices are up, many point fingers at the White House, even though residents, presidents don't control the prices. And it ends. We need Congress to close the tax loopholes that have all allowed trillions of dollars to be redirected away from the many and hoarded by the few. The rent crisis isn't a new problem. It's the latest incarnation of one of, of the one that started when policymakers began to pretend that greed is good. Here are some obituaries in today's paper. Patricia Gilbert, Mason City, 77, passed away Tuesday, February 13th at her home in Mason City. A memorial service will be held 3 p.m. Friday the 16th at Hogan Bremer Colonial Chapel on 3rd Street, Northeast Mason City. With Meloner, Pastor Melanie Gringo of First United Methodist Church officiating, inurement will follow in Memorial Park Cemetery. And Kathy Ann Sinwell, S-I-N-N-W-E-L-L, Mason City, passed away Sunday the 11th. Mercy One North Medical Center in Mason City. Funeral service will be held at 10 a.m. Saturday, February 17th, with lay minister Al Berg officiating. Burial will be in the Clear Lake Cemetery near Clear Lake, Iowa. And Lucille Werner, Osage, longtime resident of Meyer and Osage, passed away Monday the 12th at Homestead Assisted Living in Mason City. A memorial mass will be held on Lucille's 95th birthday at 11 a.m. Saturday the 17th at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Osage with Reverend Raymond Brookle as a celebrant. And, um, and another one here, this is Sally Joanne Meyerhofer, uh, age 75, New Hampton, died Sunday the 11th at her home, surrounded by her family. And uh, there will be... Um, Friends may greet the family 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday the 15th at the Huge Back Johnson Funeral Home and Crematory in New Hampton where there will be a 7 p.m. Parish Scripture service. Running close to being out of time, but I'm going to do a couple highlights on sports here. going to try to do a couple things. And uh, this is uh, one that Taylor Weber lost in the round of 16 and fell short of a Medal a year ago in the IHSAA Class 2A State Wrestling Tournament going on now in Des Moines, Iowa. On Wednesday morning, he made it a step further. The 10th-seeded Charles City senior picked up a first-round majors decision before taking 7th-seeded Cooper Ludwig from Carroll uh, to book a spot in Thursday's 150-pound quarterfinals. And uh, freshman Carter Catchmall was one of the standouts of the whole tournament on Wednesday morning after he took Sadell's Colton Keller in the 132 round of 16. 
He fell behind early, but rebounded and ultimately pinned Keller in the third period to book a spot in the quarterfinals. Another short note, Osage's number number is shine in opening rounds, defending 2A state champion Osage had a good, not a great opening round. The Green Devils saw all five of their top-seeded wrestlers win. And folks, you are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the upcoming Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call, 515-243-6833. And now we're going to turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger for February 15, Thursday, 2024. And on the front page, it says, Hydrogen Search Underway is a lead story. Drilling in northern Webster County for gas. It's written by Bill Shea, and it's uh, Dateline Vincent. A couple of miles northeast of Vincent, at the edge of a field, is a spot where a company is drilling deep under the ground in search of a hydrogen gas. The drilling site is in is at the intersection of 110th Street and Washington Avenue. Anyone driving by will notice some big, I'm sorry, some big red metal boxes in the top end of a drill protruding from the ground. They're going way down there, man, several thousands of feet, said Jeff Johnson, Webster County's planning and zoning administrator. Daphne Willert, a Vincent area resident who talked to the County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday about the drilling said it was being done by a company she identified only as Twin Rivers. According to Willerth, Twin Rivers representatives have told area residents that if hydrogen is found, it will be pumped out of the ground and shipped elsewhere in tanker trucks. She also said that water is being trucked from Fort Dodge to help with the process. There was no activity at the drilling site Wednesday. Johnson said there was drilling activity last summer, which concluded for the year in the fall. He said the drilling is an allowable use in the area, which is zoned for agricultural purposes, and there are no rules against drilling, he said. It truly is a private matter, he said. If they knock on your door, you can tell them you don't want them on your land. Right below that story on page one, this one, counterfeit car seats raise safety concerns, Again, written by Bill Shea. And it says, Picking the right car seat for their child is among the seemingly endless weighty decisions new parents must make. That decision is made more complicated by an influx of car seats that don't meet current safety standards. The problem of these counterfeit car seats is getting worse in the Fort Dodge area, according to hospital and law enforcement officials. Counterfeit car seats pose a significant threat to the safety of children and infants, said Lindsay Barden, an advanced registered nurse practitioner for Blank Children's Hospital and Unity Point Health Trinity Regional Medical Center. They often lack safety features and fail to meet industry standards, she added. We want to make sure parents are aware this is happening, so they are on the lookout when purchasing a car seat for their little one, she said. Iowa State Patrol Trooper Paul Gardner said he has found these counterfeit seats while doing crash investigations. I have seen these, and I know they are out there, said Gardner, who is a certified child seat technician. He offers his bit, He offers this bit of advice for parents. 
If they find a car seat that seems to be too good to be true for the price, they should question the legitimacy of that car seat, he said. Barden and Gardner often offer these tips for parents buying car seats. Where to buy? You go to well-known, reputable stores or the websites of known manufacturers. Avoid online marketplaces, garage sales, or secondhand stores. Well, how to recognize a legitimate car seat? The seat should come with plenty of paperwork and labels, including warranty information, manufacturer's data, customer service number, serial number, an expiration date, and labels indicating that it complies with current safety standards. If any of that paperwork contains spelling and grammar errors, parents should be suspicious. Look for a chest clip that secures straps across the child's chest. Nearly every car seat approved for sale in the United States has a chest chip except for car beds and booster seats. Make sure the harness straps are at least 1.5 inches wide where to get help with car seats. The staff at the Trinity Birth Center can provide advice. They can be reached at 515-574-6052. That is 515-574-6052. The Webster County Health Department, District 7 of the Iowa State Patrol, and the Gallery Police Department have certified child seat technicians. Another article from uh, page one, New Housing Development Plan Near Fairgrounds, again written by Bill Shea. Land immediately south of the Webster County Fairgrounds will become a new housing area. There will be 12 to 16 lots for single-family homes there, according to Dave Bianchi, a spokesman for DBJG Properties, LLC, which owns the roughly seven-acre site. We're excited about it, he said. The first step will be construction of a road uh, into the site from Old Highway 169. The developer will pay for constructing it. Bianchi said he hopes construction of the road can begin next month. The placement of the road will ultimately determine how many lots will be available for houses, he said. The houses will be on lots measuring about one-third of an acre. DBJG Properties will build the houses. Bianchi said he hopes to start the construction for the of the first four houses this summer. We want the project to be completed in five years, he said. Also on the front page, uh, this article by Deanna Meyer. Messenger staff to wins INA honors. The messenger staff won several awards in Class V, five of the 2024 Iowa Newspaper Association Better Newspaper Contest. For the newsroom, former messenger reporter Kelly Wingert won second place for Best Personality Feature Story for covering of a drug court graduation in a story headlined, A New Chapter. The judge commented, great take on a difficult subject. Wingard also won third place for coverage of uh, Court and Crime, which included timely stories raising public awareness of counterfeit bills and Facebook scams affecting the local area. The judge described her entries as, Useful stories with photos that show how believable the scams can appear. And this entry also included a story titled, I'm Still Here, in which a stabbing victim confronts her attacker by reading her statement during a sentencing hearing, and one regarding juror misconduct. The Messenger Advertising Department also won several awards. Messenger Sales Representative Jody Kaser 
won first place for Best Ad Featuring Financial, Insurance, or Other Professional Service. Kayser also won third place for the Best Ad Featuring Miscellaneous and third place for Best Ad Featuring Agriculture. And Messenger Advertising Manager Leon Dar and Messenger Sales Representative Brittany Benson won third place for Best Ad Featuring Furniture, Furnishings, Appliances, or Hardware. Okay, moving to page three of the Messenger, Biden allies' rivals both want transcript of his special counsel interview released. Dateline is Washington. President Joe Biden avoided criminal charges around his handling of classified documents in part because of his answers during a lengthy interview with the special counsel investigating him. But the sit-down also opened Biden up to fresh scrutiny over his age and memory, and now the public release of a transcript of that discussion is being sought by both Biden allies and critics seeking political advantage. The five-hour interview over two days, led by special counsel Robert Herr, helped establish that Biden didn't intend to retain most of the sensitive records from his vice presidency that were found at his home and personal office. But Herr's report also repeatedly impugned Biden's memory in a deeply personal way, suggesting, for example, the president couldn't remember when his own son had died. The transcript, if released, could provide a fuller picture of the conversation. White House has the ultimate say over whether to make public the transcript or audio recording of the interview or to claim executive privilege and keep the interview private. There's precedent for either decision. Page four now, The Messenger. Uh, GOP Speaker Johnson says House won't be rushed to approve bid for Ukraine as $95 billion package stalls. Dateline is Washington. Republican Speaker Mike Johnson said Wednesday the U.S. House will not feel rushed to pass the $95.3 billion foreign package, aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and other allies, signaling a further stall over sending military hardware and munitions Kiev badly needs to fight Russia. Johnson made the remarks behind closed doors at a morning meeting of House Republicans who are largely aligned with Donald Trump, the party's presidential front-runner. In in opposing the Senate-passed foreign assistance for Ukraine's fight against Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion, the Speaker let colleagues know that the House will instead, quote, work at its will, end quote, in considering package, said the person familiar with the private remarks and granted anonymity to discuss them. The Republican-led House will not be jammed or forced into passing a foreign aid bill, Johnson said at a press conference afterward. Johnson, who rejected a border security compromise that was eventually stripped from the final product, said the Senate's package does nothing to secure the U.S.-Mexico border, which has been the GOP's priority. He said he had requested a meeting with President Joe Biden months ago on these issues, and he was still waiting for the opportunity to talk one-on-one. The White House suggested that Johnson was in no position for productive talks after Republicans demanded that border security be attached to the national security aid, and then he rejected the bipartisan package approved by the Senate. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said that Johnson basically needs to negotiate with himself on what to do rather than the White House. That, uh, what is there to negotiate, she said at Wednesday's news briefing. What is the one-on-one negotiation about when he's been presented with exactly what he asked for? So he's negotiating with himself. The slow walk of U.S. aid to an, uh, an ally 
during the largest ground war in Europe since World War II shows how far Republicans have retreated from overseas leadership in line with Trump. While Johnson has said he personally suggests supports aid for Ukraine, he leads a far-right majority that is more closely aligned with Trump's isolationist ideology and increasingly a hands-off approach to Putin's aggression. It's increasingly clear the new speaker has no clear strategy for what happens next as the aid package that was approved by an overwhelming majority of senators this week falls into serious jeopardy. New article headline is, Are We About to Find Out the Moon's Origin? Japan's space agency says it may now have clues. Tokyo is the dateline. An unmanned lunar spacecraft has captured and transmitted data analyzing 10 lunar rocks, a greater-than-expected achievement that could help provide clues about the origin of the moon, a Japan space agency official said Wednesday. For four days, the smart lander for investigating moon, or SLIM, S-L-I-M, which landed on the moon last month, has used its multi-band spectral camera to study rock composition and worked on examining lunar rocks, said Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency project manager Shinichiro Sakai. The lunar mission is Japan's first. The spacecraft made a historic precision touchdown on January 20, though it landed the wrong way up, with its solar panels initially unable to see the sun and was turned turned off after a brief communication with Earth. But on the eighth day, it started working, allowing it to successfully establish communication with the command center at JAXA, JAXA, on Earth. A black-and-white photo transmission soon after SL SLIM was reactivated showed the bumpy lunar surface, including six rocks, the craft eventually obtained data from 10 rocks altogether, all of which have been given the names of dog breeds, such as, oh my, it's spelled A-K-I-T-A-I-N-U, Akitanu, uh, Beagle, that one I know, and Shibano, S-H-I-B-A-I-N-U. Those are the dog names. We are hoping that the rock analysis will lead us to the origin of the moon, Sakai said. By comparing the mineral compositions of moon rocks and those on Earth, the, uh, those of Earth, they could find out if the rocks have common elements. He said, according to the giant impact hypothesis, the moon is believed to have formed as a result of the Earth colliding with another planet and a smaller mass spinning off them. And here's another article on uh, page four. It says, caught at border with pythons in his pants, New York City man fined and sentenced to probation. Albany, New York is the dateline. New York City man who admitted to smuggling three Burmese pythons in his pants through a U.S.-Canadian border crossing was sentenced Wednesday to a year of probation and fined $5,000, federal prosecutors said. Calvin Bautista, 38, crossed into northern New York with the hidden snakes on a bus from Montreal to New York City on July 15 of 2018, Young adult snakes were hidden in the inner thigh of his pants and snake bags tied to the pants, uh, pants drawstring. They were discovered by U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers, according to court documents and a release from the office of U.S. Attorney Carla Friedman. The Queen's residents purchased the snakes, which were worth more than $2,500 at a reptile store in Canada, according to court documents. Importation of Burmese pythons is regulated by an international treaty and by U.S. federal regulations, listing them as, 
quote, injurious to human beings, end quote. The Burmese python, one of the world's largest snakes, considered a vulnerable species in its native Asia and is invasive in Florida where it threatens native animals. That's a little older story than I thought, but I read it anyway. Cyber attacks on hospitals are likely to increase, putting lives at risk, experts warn. Again, Dateline is Washington. Cybersecurity experts are warning that hospitals around the country are at risk for attacks like the one that is crippling operations at a premier Midwestern children's hospital and that the U.S. government is doing too little to prevent such breaches. Hospitals in recent years have shifted their use of online technology to support everything from telehealth to medical devices to patient records. Today, they are a favorite target for Internet thieves who hold systems data and networks hostage for hefty ransom, said John Riggi, the American Hospital Association cybersecurity advisor. Unfortunately, the unintended consequence of the use of all this network and internet-connected technology is it expanded our digital attack surface, Riggi said. So, many more opportunities for bad guys to penetrate our networks. Turning to obituaries today in the paper, looks like there is just this one. Patricia Ann Meacham Frey Reynoldson was born on Family Farm, where her father was born southeast of Weldon, Iowa. She was the second daughter of Edna Lockwood Meacham and Lawrence Alfred Meacham. Patricia Pat died on 2-11, February 11, at Friendship Haven Retirement Community in Fort Dodge, where she had resided since November of 2022. Pat was baptized into the Weldon Christian Church at the age of 12, later transferring her membership to the First Christian Church in Osceola, Iowa. She was educated through 7th grade at Center Country School in rural Decatur County, Iowa, finished 8th and 9th grades at Weldon Schools in Weldon, and upon graduating from Osceola High School in 1949, she worked at REA, now Clark Electric Cooperative, uh, in Osceola. And it goes on here... uh, Pat's kindness, generosity, and unwavering loyalty touched the lives of her family, her friends, and many others who were blessed by her presence in their lives. Memorials may be directed to Friendship Haven Good Samaritan Fund. A memorial service will begin at 1 p.m. Monday, the 19th of February, at Isles Dunn's Chapel, 2121 Grand Avenue in Des Moines. The family will greet friends following the service. And it's sports times now on The Messenger. Before we get to the uh, Iowa State wrestling stories, here's one on the uh, Fort Dodge girls were ousted in defensive battle, written by Dana Becker. A slow start led to an abrupt end to the season for the Fort Dodge girls here Wednesday night. Boone raced out to a 16-6 lead over and never looked back, holding off a late Dodger rally to advance 42-39. The Toradors, 5-17 overall, will now face Humboldt, 17-4, on Saturday night in the Class 4A Regional 7 final, semifinal. We played a much better second half, FDSH head coach Scott Messerly said. I felt like we were mentally ready before the game started, but once we got on the court, we lacked something. We just never really got it going much outside a small window there in the third quarter. Down by as many as 14 points, Fort Dodge 9-12 and 12, took the lead in the third quarter on a bucket by sophomore L.J. Mayo, that capped an 18-4 run. Boone, though quickly, answered and would hold serve through the final eight minutes. 
Mel scored a team-high 16 points with Mackenzie McElrath adding 8 and 10 rebounds in her final game as a Dodger. Junior Brooklyn Palmer had 6 points and 9 boards. For the Toradors, Aaron Aides, who had 25 in the regular season meeting between these programs, had a game-high 19 points with 11 coming after the break. Sydney Adams, averaging just over 8 per game, had 18. 9 were in the first quarter. We only lose Mackenzie from the regular rotation, Messerly said. We asked her to do a lot, especially after me, Maya, uh, McCaleb, got hurt. Over the last four years, she's been named All-Conference, is an academic All-Starter. She's going to be a tough, it's going to be tough to replace. With just over three minutes to go, a male three-pointer tied it at 37-all. Boone, though, made five of seven attempts from the free-throw line down the stretch to seal the win. Tonight's Tonight, Clark closes in on record by John Bonacamp. Iowa City is the dateline. Fans who wanted to be able to say they were in the arena when Caitlin Clark set the NCAA women's career scoring record will be paying an unprecedented premium at this point. Even the person responsible for the spectacle was having trouble accommodating everyone who asked for her for tickets. I've had to tell a lot of people no, said Clark who still was able to take care of a large group of family and friends for Thursday night's game between number 4 Iowa and Michigan at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. Ticket prices were trending toward being the most expensive ever for a women's basketball game, pro or college, according to secondary market seller Tick Pick. And now some Iowa, uh, Iowa wrestling state wrestling stories. This one by Chris Johnson. Six Dodgers reach quarterfinals, FDSH in fourth. It's uh, Des Moines is the dateline. It was easy for senior Kane Buttrick to adjust to the bright lights of Wells Fargo Arena on Thursday at the state wrestling tournament. After doing so, the veteran senior found himself in the quarterfinals with five of his teammates. The Dodgers had a strong opening day in Class 3A, going 9-5 with their 11 qualifiers. Fort Dodge currently sits in fourth place with 37 team points. Southeast Polk 58 is in first followed by Ankeny Centennial, 48.5, and Bettendorf, 47.5. Joining Buttrick in the quarters will be third seed senior Drew Ayea, second seed junior Coy Davidson, and number two senior Demarion Ross, top seed sophomore Dresham Ross, who is at 215, and fifth seed sophomore Luke Firke, 285. We had a good first round for the most part, said FDSH head coach Bobby Thompson. Obviously, there are some things you wish you could change, but what's done is done. Now you have to fight. Every point is crucial, and backside wins are so important. You will start to see gaps widen as teams separate and you get deeper into the tournament, he said. It was a great start for 19th-seeded Dodger freshman Trace uh, Ryle, 106, who won his first state match. Sophomore Sam Davidson, 126, a state returnee, also won a match for FDSH. Buttrick, 36-7, easily took care of Cedar Rapids Kennedy's Aiden Roman in the opening round, pinning him in 2 minutes and 36 seconds. In the second round, Buttrick fought for a tough 3-0 victory over 8th-seeded Mitchell Murphy, 36.8, of Hempstead. I knew I could beat the kid. I just had to wrestle smart, Butrick said. Having a first-round match helped me lock into the Wells Arena environment. I just have to keep controlling what I can, and I'll be able to go far, he said. 
Buttrick uh, will have a tough case task in the quarterfinals against top-seeded Jace Luna, 42-3 of Bettendorf, a three-time medalist. Kane wrestled really well despite having two tough matches, Thompson said. He beat the eighth seed, and it was a sound match. Kane controlled it. After waiting for nearly two hours from the start of the season session, the top eight seeds finally hit the mat. Aya, 40-3, dropped Waukee's Nick McAllister, 18-12, in the quarterfinal match for his 150th career victory. Up next for Alea is six-seed Reed Foster of Bondurant Farrar. Drew got it done, Thompson said. I know he's not happy with the uh, way he performed, but a win down here is a win. Now you regroup, refocus, and do what we talk about. Keep pushing, he said. Coy Davidson, 39-2, knocked off Indianola's Eli Cox in the first period, pinning his shoulders in 1 uh, minute and 58 seconds. It was the FDSH Junior's 105th career victory. I'm just taking it one match at a time, Davidson said. I'm looking forward to climbing the ladder. Davidson will face 7th seed Zane Berenz, 25-8 of Waverly Shell Rock in the quarterfinals. For Coy... It's a mindset to get to the level you want, Thompson said. You can't let distractions get in your way. It's a long day, with weigh-ins and guys that have buys. They have to sit around for a long time. Senior the Marion Ross, uh, 39-4, had a 13-5 major decision over Grant Gamble, 27-13 of Waukee, in his 13th Dodger victory. Ross will have a challenge in the quarterfinals against number 7 Braxton Westendorf, 29 and 7 of Waverly Shell Rock. Demarion came out and got bonus points. He took care of business, Thompson said. He has a really big quarterfinal match, and if he can get past that, I think he cleans, clears things. Top ranked Dreshawn Ross, 44 and 0, spent very little time on the mat, sticking Carlisle's Aiden Wyckoff in 30 seconds. Keeping the main thing the main thing and going out there to dominate. Not just squeak out a win is the goal, Dreshen Ross said. Next up for Ross is number nine, Gene Nagoma, 37-9 of Cedar Rapids Xavier. Dreshen is now messing around. Is not messing around, Thompson said. He's going to be efficient and get it and out. Firkin, 34-9, making his state tournament debut, pinned Lewis Central's Carlos Andrade in 1 minute and 41 seconds. I felt pretty confident in my ability to win, Ferky said. I was confident, but a little nervous, given it was my first match. Afterward, I felt good. I'm ready to go. Ferky's second opponent is number four, Drew Campbell, 27-3 of Cedar Falls. Luke has been wrestling great down the stretch, Thompson said. I'm eager to see him get back out there and see what he can do against the fourth seed. Senior Cal Hartman, 33-11. Dropped a heartbreaking 5-2 and two decision to Abe Parker, 25-17 and 17 of Waukee Northwest in the second round. Hartman will try to bounce back against number 22, Ethan Williams of Clear Creek, Amana. Cal's match will stick with you. I really feel for him, Thompson said. He just has to come back now on the backside and help us get a team trophy. He's still a big part of what we've tried to do this week. Rael, R-I-A-L, 26-23, won a tight 7-1 decision over 14th-seeded Mason Ostenink, 24-10 of Boone. 
He lost to third-seeded Weston Porter, 33-0, of Council Bluffs Lewis Central by fall in the second round. Rael will now compete against number 20 seed George Grant Mavromatis of Valley. Trance had a huge win in the first round, Thompson said. He looked good, but then had a draw against Lewis Central. He now has a winnable match to keep pushing toward the blood round. Sam Davidson, 1911, beat Waukee's Lincoln. Miller, 11 and 8, lost to Ankeny's Truman Folkers, 26 and 6, by fall. Davidson's first foe on Thursday is number 22, Cameron Bennett of Des Moines East. Sam's backside looks good, Thompson said. It's a mindset of who wants to be done and who wants to stay alive now. Sophomore Riley Brown, 27 and 22, dropped an 11 to 3 major decision at 144 pounds. Classmate Jesse Eglai, 29-22 lost a 4-0 decision at 157 pounds. Brown will square off with Parker Casey of Johnston. Eglai has 13th-seeded Tegan Peffer of Ankeny. Riley and Jesse need to come out and let it fly, Thompson said. They have winnable matches on the backside. They just have to wrestle one match at a time. Class 3A action begins on Thursday at 1.30 p.m. inside Wells Fargo Arena. That is not far from... And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger and Mason City Globe Gazette. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. I want to thank you for sharing time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, and I wish you a good day.